You're listening to CISO Secret Podcast, brought to you by Checkpoint. And now, welcome your host, Grant Asplund. Hey, welcome, 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 everyone. Thank you so much for joining me on another episode of CISO Secrets. Man, I am so excited about my guest today. I can't even tell you because it's, I mean, look, we're all in this business and I will guarantee you the company is one that you will immediately recognize. And I'm super thrilled to give you a chance to get to know their CEO and really understand a little bit more about who's driving this organization. The organization, ISC2. You may say ISC squared. We're going to go with ISC2. And I'm thrilled and honored to introduce my guest today. We've got the Chief Executive Officer, Claire Russell. Claire, thank you very much for being here. Grant, I am so excited to be here with you today and talk to you. I can't wait to get started. Yeah, it's awesome. So I got to tell you, I'm looking through your profile. I mean, I always kind of do that, right? And I just was fascinated by the what appears to be significant leap you've made here in the last couple of years uh, over into cybersecurity. I won't reveal it. I'll let you reveal it. Maybe you can take a second and just talk about uh, your journey and how you got to where you are, and then we'll just have a great conversation. All right. So I think if we want to talk about my career journey and the unconventional nature of my career journey, you got to go back to what was my first career ambition. Like, what did I dream of being when I was five years old? I dreamed of playing second base for the Los Angeles Dodgers. <laughs> Not okay. Like, so no, no, no. But it maybe says something about me, right? Kind of like breaking convention, going a path uncharted. Yeah. And how has that played out, right? So I was a sports reporter, I was a magazine editor, I corporate communications and then moved into in my career, executive management of associations, but I was firmly for decades in the working with the accounting and finance profession globally. So when I got the call from the recruiter that said, hey, we have this opening. It's an organization I'd heard of ISC Squared, which is mm-hmm. great. Mm-hmm. Um, they need a new CEO at cybersecurity industry. They want a cybersecurity expert, at which point I probably chuckled just a little <laughs> <laughs> and said, so why are you talking to me? Because yes, I know how to run that business. I know how to work with a profession. I am not a cybersecurity expert, right. but um, you know, and I had some great interviews virtually during the pandemic with the board, and there were more things similar to my mm-hmm. background than different. And mm-hmm. here I am, um, just over two years into the role. Yeah, that's outstanding. And, you know, Claire, I was thinking, um, when I think about accounting, right, I mean, I, I, I just... It's so absolute. It's just one plus one equals two. There's just, there's no options. There's no variables. And I think about cybersecurity and how it's evolved, but the fundamental framework, the principles 
for good cybersecurity are really very similar. And you know, you mentioned the association aspect, and I really see that you effectively understanding how to pull large bodies of uh, different people from all over the globe together with a common cause. Mm-hmm. sure fits into what I think the mantra is for cybersecurity. So I, I love it. Yeah. And I think you're, I think you hit that right on. I think some of the intersection between accounting and finance and cybersecurity is this deep desire and just foundational pillar of public protection. Mm-hmm. It is strong in both, mm-hmm. um, high value on ethics in both. Risk management is at the core of both professions. And so really, like really a much deeper overlap than I would have expected. And then unfortunately, I think for me in my career, I had spent a lot of time on technology projects, uh, either as an executive sponsor or in the weeds. And, you know, security is part of that. So a right. lot, lot of intersection, actually, in my career, more than I expected when I started yeah, the role. I, I'm fascinated. The more I think it through, the more I really see a very tight alignment. And um, I think, you know, one of the words that came to mind, too, as you were discussing was trust. You know, trust my accountant. I mean, there's probably only one person I trust more, and that's my wife. You know, I mean, my accountant is somebody who, you know, I, I, they, they know more about the inner uh, workings of me and my life than just about anybody. And yeah. so there's got to be an unbelievable level of trust, confidence. Right. Mm -hmm. To know, you know what you're doing. I mean, there's a number of amazing parallels. Now, did you did the recruiter or the hiring company now ISC2 put that already together to to reach out to you? Or was that kind of a self-awareness that you you came to after you started interviewing? Um, I think. I think it was a little bit of both. I think the people on the the uh, search committee probably thought they were going to yep. hire a elite professional within the cybersecurity industry. And then when they thought about what are we really looking for and what does the organization need? What does the profession need? Do they right. need somebody who is an absolute expert in cybersecurity? Or do they need somebody who's going to help grow the profession and help create a voice as an yeah. advocate for the profession globally, which frankly is what sorely was lacking yes. when I joined the organization two years ago. Nobody was speaking on behalf of the profession as across the globe, there's been a tidal wave of mm. interest in legislating or regulating what and how cybersecurity professionals do what they do. So that's where I think I fit nicely into this role because I can bring that to the table and give some voice Mm. to our now 275,000 members, associates and candidates across the globe. Remarkable. You know, there's, I think it's safe to say since the pandemic really just forced this digital transformation around the globe, Mm -hmm. 
in tandem with that increase was a significant increase on the part of the nefarious, right? right. I mean, the right. bad guys got busy because there was so many people doing the ready, fire, aim, right? Mm-hmm. You know, you got to go home. You got to work from home. Oh, by the way, still make your numbers. Still be productive, but don't leave your house. And I think the cyber community, the bad side of it, Oh boy, they just started rubbing their hands together and said, hey, baby, this is, it's go time. And and at the same time, I've never seen more energy, enthusiasm, momentum behind what we're doing. The, The protection side, the defenders, right? I mean, it's really been remarkable. How has it impacted ISC2 for you in the last couple of years as this whole uh, dust ball has increased? I, you know, I think it's actually been, um, it's been eye-opening. It's really provided us an opportunity to see what propels cybersecurity professionals. You know, we, we have spent a long time, let me back up. When I, when I started this position in October, 2020, it's the time of the year that ISC squared releases its workforce study. Mm -hmm. And so the team came to me and they said, here's our workforce day. This is what the cybersecurity workforce gap is this year. And I said, wow, that's super interesting. What are we doing about it? Mm -hmm. Well, we're, we're telling people what the gap is, is the response I got. And I was like, well, that's not going to cut it. That's nice. Good that we're shining a light on the problem, but we need to do something about it because as you just described, the whole world moving to remote work and who knew how unprepared we were for that. Mm -hmm. And the explosion of vulnerable endpoints, the HVAC control in my house, the 16% of all Wi-Fi routers in homes that they've never changed the default password, never mind my internet-enabled sprinklers or whatever other thing I have going in my house. Um, The the threat landscape just exploded. And so we, it really helped us focus on the value and the purpose that cybersecurity professionals bring in the marketplace. And actually, when we even look at cybersecurity professionals and their job satisfaction, Mm. their job satisfaction levels are at the highest they've ever been. So raising their Mm. hand saying, man, we're exhausted because this has not been easy sailing Log4j and other incidents. You said their job satisfaction or or dissatisfaction satisfaction so they're happy they're really it's high because because they're living their purpose Ah, they are here to protect the public to make our information and systems safe and secure and they have been tried unlike any other time in the past to be successful in doing that so actually job satisfaction Hmm. is hugely high now are they satisfied with their employers that's a whole different ball of wax interesting the purpose of what they do satisfaction is hugely high which then for us gives us ways to look beyond current recruiting practices to try to attract others into the profession and say hey these are reasons why you might want to enter cybersecurity. yeah and you know asking that question 
um, what are we doing about it? You know, you know, the, the entrepreneur in me is saying, there's an enormous opportunity there. Are, are we figuring out how to exploit that opportunity? How to, to fill that void, uh, you know, instead of just shining a light on that, right? Yeah. And so here's, here's one of the first things we did. So we, in talking to our members, you know, who represent employers, I heard over and over, um, you know what we need? We need a way to bring people in. And we need sort of that entry level certification where as an employer, I know someone who passed that has shown the capacity mm -hmm. to learn about the domains of the cybersecurity profession. And if you can show me that, then I will am willing to invest in that individual, train them on the job and help mm -hmm. move them into a cybersecurity career. So we created that certification and we pilot tested and validated the exam in the first half of the year. We launched it officially September 1. Mm. We have over 40,000 people who've already signed up for their exams. We are closing in on 100,000 people who've enrolled in the education. <laughs> and, and we wow. are attracting people from all over the world, from all sorts of different backgrounds, because what we found out is what we created to help the employers is also helping individuals who come from non-traditional backgrounds yeah. explore the technical side of cybersecurity and try to make a, a discernment of whether or not it's something they're interested in and something mm -hmm. they might want to pursue more. Right. So super exciting yeah. forward movement That's in that awesome. very thing that we said something needed to be done. So just so I want to make sure I understand. So it sounds like you, you essentially created the common denominator, if you will, right? The, the, the blocks that you yep. put your feet in uh, yep. uh, as you get ready for the race. It, it, yep. it's, it, because if you've got to get to that point in order to, to go into the race. And I also really like, you said something that I think is so critical. And it reminds me of, of, the, um, of the person that, you know, has a dream of growing up and being a doctor their whole life. And they go in and they go through school and then they get to being a doctor. I got a friend that's a pediatrician and she hated it. And she didn't want to do it anymore. And, and, and she's got this enormous, you know, uh, student loan bill and this wonderful degree. But, you know, she she really it wasn't what got her going. And so I think, that you know, that's a critical part. You know, I just got an email this morning. Claire, it was, it was so cool. Uh, it was this guy who saw me speak in Columbus, Ohio like two weeks ago, and he wrote me a note saying, I'm a, I used to be a teacher. I made the move to cybersecurity. I saw you speak and you absolutely convinced I made the, you convinced me I made the right uh, decision. You know, it was cool. It made me feel really, really awesome. But I think that that's so important to provide the, the baseline foundation, and then also some exposure, because some people 
they may not dig it. Right? I mean, it may not be. No, what they no, want no. To they do. may they may start to do the access control and network security parts and say, "Ooh, <laughs> I, I'm not sure I want that." Or, yeah. or if I do, I need to go into a different part of cybersecurity because yeah. there's do, lots of different roles. Yeah. Lots do of you, different roles. Do you do marketing? <laughs> right. <laughs> I mean, I I totally I totally get it. But so I, I I'm curious. How long has ISC uh, uh, two been around? You guys have been around for a few so years. About 20, 34 years. Thirty-four years. Nineteen eighty-nine. Maybe I'm hoping you can explain or talk a little bit about. You know, that's a long time. You haven't been with the company, and you've come, and you got two years, and you're stirring the pot. Where do you see it changing? Where do you see it? It's been and where it's going, and how you're transforming the company. Okay. So I consider anything we're doing kind of an and strategy. So the beauty of, you know, how IC Square was started is it was truly a consortium where different groups and individuals came together to say, you know, we need to add a little structure to what is this loose area of cybersecurity and how we certify people in information and system security. And so that structure was set up not so long after CISSP was created, which was wonderful. And what happened over the next three decades is the organization built and maintained some amazing certifications that became the cornerstone of the cybersecurity industry. I mean, CISSP, I go all over the globe, is truly the gold standard of cybersecurity certification. And and the work that was done to both build that certification, ensure that its reputation was strong, and drive people to want to earn it was tremendous. I mean, the, Mm. the founding individuals who started ISC Squared and got them through the first many years, because for decades, the board actually ran the organization. They didn't have people like me. The board just ran the organization. So some tremendous, tremendous work that was done. Mm -hmm. And I think the difference is we're still doing all that. So we are still committed to putting the best certifications that there are out there on the market, making sure that they are recognized as they should be globally and preserving the integrity of the cybersecurity profession. All those building blocks are firmly in place and we are simply trying to amplify. So we are trying to amplify the recognition of the certifications. We are trying to bring in appropriate new certifications as is appropriate. Mm -hmm. We're trying to drive new people into the profession. Um, we're ensuring that as an organization, because historically so much of the focus was on driving people to certification, that we want to make sure that we're also serving the needs of our members and what they're struggling with today, both through continuing education and through maybe a little more sticky things like regulation coming along for mandatory incident or breach reporting. Um, What is the role of the CISO and how do we ensure that they are being positioned appropriately and their levels of responsibility and accountability within their organizations are appropriate 
So they're not left holding, um, uh, being held responsible for something that ultimately really wasn't their responsibility. Because there's a tremendous amount of pressure on CISOs today. And we need to make sure that it's the right pressure, I guess, is the way I would say. And they are not left holding the bag for something that wasn't even their responsibility or accountability. So it's things like that where we're evolving, I think, as an organization. And, you know, and I alluded to this earlier, but there is a lot of activity around the globe about how should the profession be licensed or regulated. And we want to make sure that our members have a a seat at that table and that we give them a voice as the UK is considering a licensing scheme that's 16 times three levels of licensing job titles in cybersecurity. Or we're supporting the Office of the National Cyber Director in the US as they are um, building a workforce and education strategy for cybersecurity. We've provided them with background briefings and lots and lots of information to help make sure that they're making informed decisions and similar mm-hmm. activities truly are going on all over the globe. So that, mm. so we are just, we are, we are preserving the wonderfulness of the past and creating, um, amplifying it into the future. Yeah. So I'm, I'm thinking, and I don't know the answer to this, uh, but you know, when cars came about, they probably didn't have a DMV uh, and, and and training, right? Probably uh, not. I, I mean, I I just I'm I'm you know thinking out loud as I'm going through this in my mind, but I'm thinking, you know, we're behind. Computers have been around for a long time. We've been using them, right? I kind of see this this similarity in that. We, we got out there and we were driving all around the field and everything. And then we wanted to start to um, be, we wanted to go to work. We wanted to go to grandma's house. We wanted to go to the neighbors. We, had, we wanted to start to organize. It wasn't just tootling out through the field. But we, we didn't have the structure and the training and the discipline in place to support that, I, I, and maybe I'm, I'm mixing up metaphors, but you see what I'm saying, right? About you, how, sorry, go ahead. I mean, I, I'm you, trying- you are You are so right on, you are so right on. So so we have ethical canons for, the, for ISC squared, and we use them actually as a barrier to entry before we allow somebody to be certified. But then we don't, we don't have as rigorous a process for how do we hold people to those ethical standards or a code of conduct mm-hmm. once you're within the profession? What mm. should that be? Can we create the model rule for a code of conduct right. that then can be used around the globe so we don't end up with 175 different codes of conduct that people yeah. have to adhere to? Yeah. Right. So driving on this side of the road, driving on this side of the road. Exactly. A, you know, that's an example where if the whole world would have been together on this, we all would be on either the right or the left, right? Instead of, right. you know, mixed up. You know, I mean, go to right. India, there so, is no lane. <laughs> you know, you just, so this is the it, code of conduct, right? 
Exactly. And then I think, you know, you alluded to accounting being very rules-based. Well, accounting is actually very principles-based. Right. And right. so cybersecurity alone, rules, principle, mix as well. But what the accountants have, and they've been around for 140 years, so they've had a little more time than we have. But what they have is they also have like best practice guidance for applying those rules. And so yep. like an area where we've talked to people recently and people have said, we need to do some work here is third party risk assessment, cyber risk assessment, that mm -hmm. the standards alone, and especially checkbox standards are not enough. So yep. how can we help organizations, especially organizations in highly regulated industries, yep. how can we help them create and use our members to help us do this, create a better path forward where the whole profession can benefit from yeah. that guidance. And yeah. those are the kinds of maturity things that as an organization we're starting to work on. Yeah, I think of, of generally accepted accounting principles, right? Yep. Sta the, the standard accepted principles that are the bedrock to accounting, period. Uh, and, and so I, you're, I think, exactly right. And how exciting. I mean, you are, you are, you have such an excited, to me, I'm thinking out loud again about what a great opportunity for you to have a global impact on what I see is this cake is starting finally to get cake cooked in the middle. It's been so soft. There's not been any uh, 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 principles and structure in place like the hundreds of years with accounting. But I really feel like uh, it's been accelerated, especially in the last few years where we all want this cake to get baked in the middle. Now, it'll never get completely baked because it's constantly new, right? Yeah. It's constantly right. changing. That's the industry that we love. But I really think there's an exciting opportunity for you and ISC2 to, to change the world, to, to put kind of a bit better of a fence, maybe, maybe define the roads that we'll, we'll stay on instead of tootling off through the fields. You know, I mean, I think it's really exciting. I could not agree with you more. I, it is a huge opportunity. It's a great privilege to be able to work on this on behalf of the profession. Yeah. I mean, it is pretty amazing to talk to leaders of foreign governments and you know, the Defense Department in different countries around the globe right. and share with them um, you know, the best practices we're hearing from other nations and connect them to people within government who are trying to do the same things they're trying to do to protect their critical infrastructure, to update their very outdated systems they have yep. in government at yep. the federal, state, local level. Oh. And it's, I mean, it's really rewarding to be able to have a chance to do that. And um, I know it's not the actual meaning of collective defense, but when I first heard that term collective defense, it really resonated with me because I thought, you know, we really are all in this together. Crowdsourced. And to be successful yeah. with cyber yeah. defense, if yeah. there's a best practice going on in Singapore, we need to let the whole world know about it yeah. or in which agency is the U.S. is the best practice going on and can we 
pick that apart for somebody in Japan who's trying to do the same thing. And yep. that is that is one of the great opportunities we have as an organization is to do that on behalf of the profession, which hopefully makes us all more safe and secure. Yeah, and it seems, uh, Claire, that in tandem, there's uh, underfoot a fair amount of legislation, uh, a, a, a lot of legal chatter yeah. going on amongst our lawmakers and I suspect all around the world. Um, and, you know, my point I was kind of trying to get to earlier also was, you know, we've been using computers, we've been networked, we've been going to town, but it, it doesn't feel like we've had the, the framework and the structure in place that, that everybody adheres to, right? It's been a little bit kind of catch as catch can. And I'm curious, the, the, the capitalism aspect of cybersecurity today, you know, the fact that uh, there's no public defense, there's no public organization, right? It's in the hands of, uh, uh, of companies. How does that positively or negatively impact the industry in your view? That is a fascinating question. That is a fascinating question. And, you know, it's, it's, to some degree, very different depending on where you're sitting around the world answering that question. Yeah. Um, it just seems so. Uh, the accelerated rate at which digital tech, uh, technology is invading our lives. I mean, everything is going to so, be everything. So right? this is what we're seeing. This is this is what we're seeing, and I think. I would love to see a world where we could just figure out how to get it right without having to regulate everything, but yes. not really possible. Right. So this some of the things that we are seeing starting to emerge is we are seeing and more rigorously in some parts of the world than others. And in fact, I'd be watching what the EU is up to. The EU who brought us the GDPR, stay tuned because they are really looking at, but they're not the only ones of tackling security within technology development, whether that's software or hardware, and what is the responsibility of the organization that does the development to keep mm. their products secure. Mm. So I think we're gonna see action there that could have a positive effect so that it's not just always driving to um, the great organizations are not always just driving to their greatest profit, but they're actually having to think about security by design in the beginning of yeah. what they're offering consumers. There's yeah. actually, you know, the Energy Star rating system we have here in the US? Yeah. They have that same rating system for technology in Singapore. Hmm. And while I haven't audited what they've told me, what I'm being told by the Cybersecurity Agency of Singapore is it's actually starting to drive behavior both on the technology company side and on consumer side from a purchasing decision mm. point of view. So I I have heard people um, that the the labeling mm -hmm. and the you know the cybersecurity there's been discussions about uh, labeling I guess it's the same kind of thing right to It's yeah it's very it's very similar is how do you do that but there's a massive amount of work to do. We have when we look at you know we talk about the workforce gap Mm -hmm. But here's the most alarming thing that I learned this year 
And that is that roughly, just roughly, 95% of all companies in the US with less than 100 employees have no cybersecurity professionals at all. That means they have no one who spends at least 25% of their time on their information and system security. That is alarming. That also shows us that we have, no matter what we put in place in terms of regulation, we have a really long way to go before individuals and organizations take this seriously. And so Mm -hmm. the conversation then goes beyond, yes, we need to create more cybersecurity professionals, but we have, and nations have, an obligation to think about the cyber literacy of their citizens and the level of cyber literacy of people who are in key influencing positions. SEC has an exposure draft that was talking about incident reporting, but it's also talking about, should we have people on public boards of directors that have the same level of cyber competence that we expect them to have financial expertise? That's how important it is. And of course the answer is yes. And we need that to happen. And that's going to be a lot of work. But those conversations are happening, which I think is a first step in the right direction. Boy, Claire, you said something and I immediately associated it with another statistic. And I know I'm going to, I don't have it exactly right, but, you know, certainly in America, while we always talk about the big companies, the big enterprises, what drives the economy is the small business, right? I mean, they're they're the lifeblood of this country and arguably the world. Many others. Right? And when you consider, you know, I see this diametrically opposed equation because on one hand, we're saying the most critical lifeblood to the globe in terms of economy is the businesses, the small businesses, but yet they're the ones that are really the most exposed and vulnerable from a cyber perspective. And that's the part of the business world that's accelerating the fastest, the advances in technology to replace all of the old stuff. I mean, it, 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 that's a collision course for concern, I would say, at, at minimum, right? Um, and I've said for a long, long time, Claire, it's the small businesses that are absolutely at greatest risk because of that. How do we, do you think SaaS or uh, that, that, you know, as a service is going to be able to address some of that? So I will share my opinion and i will also share the opinion of uh, the profession and what we've gained from research and so when we ask cyber professionals like to think about that and what do we need they still believe that people are at the core we can't technology is not you cannot buy technology to create a fully secure organization and if technology companies are out there claiming that all you need is their service, shame on them. Right. Because right. that's not true. You need somebody yeah. who understands no doubt. what you're what what is happening. No doubt. Um, I think this goes back to really it's an ecosystem issue. Who are the advisors of small business? Oh wow, who are the advisors of small business? Might that be the accountants? Um, <laughs> should we <laughs> Who's more important to the company that's got the, the company that's got 28 employees, 48 employees? I mean, 
data counting is pretty important, right? I mean, so, this so is we, we're right back to where you're perfect right in your job, Claire. Yeah. But seriously, like when you think about not just so boards of directors, we need to make and increase their cyber literacy. But you know what? We like the advisors of business that are critical include anybody in IT, but it also includes those accountants, the people in accounting and finance and anyone the the CEOs need to stop and take the time to understand the risks they're yep. putting their organizations at. So there's a lot of places along the line where I think we have an opportunity to help improve. And it's not going to be one thing. It's not one technology. It's yeah. not just building the cyber workforce. It is yeah. a whole collection across the ecosystem that's going to have to drive the change that we need. And we've seen it. We've seen change, right? I feel like in my, in my career time, I have seen IT move from the back office expense to technology having a seat at the strategic table within organizations. I have seen that within my career. Yep. And I think we're gonna see cybersecurity do get a same move. They might be we might be dragging our folding chair to the table right now, <laughs> but we are going to have a seat at the strategic table. Yep. And then I think I think frankly, I think it's more than just a parallel to something like the GDPR with privacy legislation around the globe, um, I think it's gonna be the natural extension. So most privacy legislation or regulation is talking about what needs to be protected, but it's not talking about what we do and how do you protect it? Oh, how yeah. are you protecting the information systems? And I think that that is gonna turn out and be sort of the natural extension which unfortunately probably is going to be a regulatory solution that is mm. going to force the question. How involved are you? I mean, one of the concerns I've had in the past, and we just went through our election cycle, right? And I'm reminded of it. You know, I, I don't have the highest level of confidence in my politicians and their a deep understanding and expertise in technology and cyber. So I get a little concerned when I hear about uh, legislation bubbling up to the highest levels. I, I get concerned. Do they really understand what it is they're creating legislation for? Do they really get it? Sometimes there's a little, because I don't think some of my congressmen or senators have had their hands on a keyboard in a while, uh, if they could even see it. You know, I, so I'm just wondering about how that's all going to come together. And I hope people like you are actively involved uh, counseling so the government. So, so our role in that, and we don't, you know, we're not, we are not contributing to political campaigns or anything of the mm -hmm. sort. We see our role as educators. And so I, a week ago, um, did a briefing for 26 U.S. federal agencies to talk about the situation, the cybersecurity landscape in the U.S. and particularly the workforce landscape. We so we have those kinds of educational conversations. We can bring our members in when they need more technical expertise for those mm -hmm. questions. But that's why it's actually pretty important that we're monitoring yeah. those proposals that are coming forward. Because when we see problems 
And I'll give you one example is when you have proposals that come forward that say, you need to report a cyber incident the second you know about it. Well, no, you shouldn't. We know that that's not the right answer because we know that the first thing you got to do when you have a cyber incident is actually kind of secure your systems and find out what's real and what's not. And if yep. you have to stop to go report that, that's going to be a problem and could even make you more vulnerable. Yep. So those are the kinds of things where we need to help bring people in to educate policymakers so they understand the consequences of what they're asking for. Right. And so that and that is, I think, some really important work that we have, mm. because if we don't do that and we're not doing that around the globe, you could end up with a kind of crazy hodgepodge yeah. of regulation that's going to actually be harmful to businesses yeah. and do the opposite of strengthen their cyber defenses. Right. I mean, we have there's been. Um legislation about reporting you were talking about how mm -hmm. and and if i remember right you you had to report an incident within like what 72 hours or something like that and then if you pay ransom if you pay ransomware you have to report it within 24 hours but what i find interesting is your point attribution is very difficult in this business right i mean and mm -hmm. and, and so I, I immediately think um, I'm kind of mixing it up now because I was thinking about the insurance industry and how. You know, oh, that's a good one. We should talk about insurance, too. Oh, I mean, you know, because they're claiming I, they want attribution. I'm sorry, but the FBI is going to be a pretty busy place because those are the guys that we generally have to go to to get attribution, right? That's so, right. That's yeah, right. I mean, the insurance, I just think it's we really... Need to, we need to talk to the insurers. We need to, and that's actually one of the things we have on deck for 2023, is we need to bring the insurance industry to the table because they don't know. They, it, this hasn't, cyber insurance hasn't been around long enough. They don't have the actuarial yeah. tables that say these five dimensions, if I can rate them over time, that's what's going to, you know, right. protect an organization. Right. And so we need to help inform what are the types of things that you should be educating. Um, you, what kinds of data should you as an insurance agency being collecting? collecting right. and measure over time to see if it reduces losses. But right. what are the, what's the kind of education that should be provided to organizations to make them more secure? What are those basics that you want to make sure they have in place? And those yeah. are the things you should be insuring against. There's a lot to be done. When I talk to our members, they they just tell me it's all over the board. Like it's so every bad. year they get a different questionnaire. It's asking different things. It yep. makes no sense. And then the rates are all over the board too. And then you have worse, you have, um, I'll just go ahead and call them kind of bad actors posing as insurance agencies say, well, let me come in and look at your systems yeah. and then I'll give you the best deal you've ever had on cyber insurance in your life and probably breach your systems at the same time. So right. lots of work to be done there. We're back at the trust thing for sure there, right? But yeah, yeah it's, it, it, what I find fascinating about the whole, um, you know, insurance, those guys are not in the business of paying claims, right? I mean, yeah, I mean, not to take any shots at the industry, but I mean, let's face it, you know, they're, 
they're not about paying everybody anytime there's a problem and they would be out of business, right? I mean, they've got to have very clear lines and they are so uninformed. That's where you're seeing the numbers all over. And I've heard a lot of interesting discussions about how cyber insurance is going to just go through the roof because... Or go away. Or the go worst away. is going to be people will exit the market if they don't think they can be profitable. Yeah, but you're yeah, right. Good point. Insurance indus- insurers are their best selves when they are actively helping the people they insure prevent losses. Prevent losses, exactly. That because is that's what, what their game is. That is what a good insurer does. And I don't think we see a huge amount of evidence and I encourage them to show it could be just, I am not aware, but I haven't heard a lot that people are looking toward their insurance agencies to help them with the best practices that would keep them more secure. I don't see that at all. Do you see that? No. I'm what I'm thinking about right here in my, I'm going Claire, you should get on the phone with the CEO of Allstate Farmers, you know, and, and, you know yeah. every other insurance company and say, hey, how come we are not aligning to help our customers? Because you're going to get more customers paying your insurance premiums if what you're providing to them is ISC2 curricula with 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 convenient you know i mean i see a real i see some uh, there's, synergy there's there. opportunity yeah. there and i think you know we have data that talks about what companies don't do when they have enough staff and we know that those same things they're not doing because they have a they don't have enough staff are also the things that put them at risk for data breaches exactly and ransomware attacks so let's exactly. look at that data yeah. and say okay how do we help organizations with that? I, yeah, I definitely see, you know, you know, it's sort of like you have to have a compound, you know, a, a CDL to drive big rigs, right? You have to have a driver's license. You got to have a motorcycle endorsement uh, to ride a motorcycle just because you know how to drive a car. And in my mind's eye, I'm seeing, you know, data center, cloud, endpoint. I mean, mm-hmm. these are the same facets that, you know, sure, the core principles are the same, but it's different in the cloud than it is on-prem. It's different on the endpoint, no, it, and you, right? You have to have qualified individuals, and you can't do what initially happened with privacy, and I think probably still happens on a wide-scale basis, where they just said, okay, you over in the corner, I'm going to make you my, my data privacy expert. You can't <laughs> right. do that with information and system security. You can't just no. ask the general counsel no. to suddenly be your security expert. It's not no. going to work. You need no. qualified individuals to do those activities. Yeah. Well, and it seems like we are uh, fortunate to have you at the helm of an organization that's going to change all that. Uh, and and I have confidence that you will. I mean, I'm really. I'm kind of excited to see what you do with the organization in the ensuing 12, 24 months, Claire. This is kind of cool. There's some opportunity for you for sure, I'm sure. Huge, huge opportunity, huge opportunity. Not an easy climb, but definitely. Oh my God, but an awesome, worthwhile climb. And and what a cause, you know? I mean, to, to be able to go home uh, and, and hang up your coat and think to yourself, 
you know, I'm making this world uh, uh, better. I'm making a difference. That's got to be exciting. It, it's exciting. In my first month on the job, I talked to every single employee in the company and virtually we had little sessions, coffee mm-hmm. sessions. And I, I asked everyone, I said, why, what do you love about ISC Square? And I got two answers, but the answer, one was I love the people, right? Which is great to hear. Yeah. The other one that I got at a level most organizations don't get, I love our mission. I love our purpose. We are here to create a safe and secure cyber world. How awesome is that to have that be the reason you go to work every morning? So I agree with you completely. So does my entire team. Yeah, that's outstanding. Wow, Claire, thank you. So much. This has been awesome. I'm looking at the clock going, I could go for another hour. See, I told you, you know, it's easy. We could just go on and on and on. We didn't even really get to uh, scratch the many surfaces we could have. But I really, I really appreciate your time and I really enjoyed talking with you. And I'm serious. I'll be watching you for the next couple of years (laughs) and the exciting stuff you guys are going to be doing. I think that's awesome. Thank you. Thank you, Grant. It has been a pleasure, an awesome part of my morning. And, um, Hope to talk to you again soon. Okay. Well, don't hang up yet. I want to do a sign off. Um, and and I'll just point out, we want to make sure that upload in your screen gets to 100% before you hang up. Okay. You see okay. it over on the right-hand side. Uh, on on uh, It should be in your Riverside uh, screen. Um, oh, yeah. It's at 99%. Yeah. Right you're, you're almost all done. So there, ladies and gentlemen, you got to listen to some of the behind the scenes comments, but Claire uh, Rosso, wow, what an amazing episode this has been. Thank you very, very much. I know ISC2 is gonna be doing some cool stuff and uh, I really appreciate, I really appreciate all your time and, and chatting with you. So thank you so very much. Well, thanks so much, Grant. You bet. So ladies and gentlemen, another episode of CISO Secrets in the Books with Claire Rosso. CEO of ISC2 or ISC squared, whichever you like. Uh, Great time. Thank you very much. Ladies and gentlemen, I hope you'll keep listening. Tell your friends, uh, share it, subscribe, and we'll look forward to having you back on the next episode of CISO Secrets. Thanks very much. Thank you for listening. Make sure to subscribe to our podcast and share with your friends and colleagues. 